My guest today, I hope to answer that question by focusing on Obadiah's central message. And toward that end, I want to read some portions of his opening line and his closing line. Obadiah opens with these words, we have heard a report from the Lord. And it closes with these words, the kingdom will be the Lord's. I've entitled this teaching, God Sees. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, in these coming moments, by your spirit, help me to preach and teach your truth faithfully and accurately, adding nothing, subtracting nothing. And by your spirit, help us to understand your truth and more importantly, help us to apply it. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit to our hearts, may the Lord be with you. Every follower of Jesus is intuitively drawn to the biblical passages that remind us of God's power, God's faithfulness, God's promises. Last night in our growth group, we asked everybody to share their favorite scriptural passage, and every one of them was a passage that spoke of God's power, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, and God's promises. Those kind of verses attract us because they build our confidence and they fuel our hope. But let's be honest, living in this fallen creation there are times when our faith buckles in the knees just a bit. We see the advance of evil in our own culture. We experience the unrelenting attacks of our culture against our faith, against God's church, and our knees buckle a little bit. And it's human nature in those moments to seek out what are called some of the lament passages of Scripture. Passages where believers long gone give voice to our discouragement, to our sadness, to our doubts, to our unanswered questions. To put it differently, there are times when we're drawn to verses that say, How long, O Lord? Rather than verses that say, How majestic is your name? And I suspect that's why Obadiah is in the Bible. Because in just 21 verses, the prophet used a history lesson to remind God's people that when they're tempted to lament, they should actually hold on to their hope. Because Obadiah assures us that God will call to account those who hate his people. Obadiah wrote about an ancient event that was rooted in an ancient hatred. It was the hatred the descendants of Esau, known as Edomites, held in their hearts towards the descendants of Jacob, known as Israel. Now you remember, Esau, Jacob were brothers. But they actually got into a wrestling contest while they were still in their mother's womb. And it continued after they came into this world. And at the time that Obadiah wrote, 
The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, intensely hated the descendants of Jacob. They hated Israel. Now, what does that got to do with life today? More than you can imagine. And here's why. That intense hatred of the Edomites towards Israel is indicated by God in Scripture to be symbolic. God makes that very clear. Symbolic of the hatred on the part of those who reject faith towards those who embrace faith. Specifically, Esau and Jacob in Scripture symbolize the flesh and the spirit that are always in opposition. And we know that the Apostle Paul and others taught that the flesh hates the spirit and resists the efforts of the Holy Spirit in our life. And the hatred that the descendants of Esau had towards the descendants of Jacob is symbolic of all that, and all of us experience that. So this ancient story is very, very relevant. Jesus understood that symbolization. You remember when he stood before Herod, and Herod was questioning him? He dissed Herod. He refused to answer his questions. Why? Because Jesus was a descendant of Jacob. Herod was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. And Jesus knew answering his questions would be a colossal waste of time. It wouldn't change anything. So Obadiah serves to remind us that the hatred of the world towards God's people is predictable and it has very little to do with God's people. That's why when you hear your faith mocked, you really shouldn't take it personally because it's not about you. Let me explain what I say. Long before Obadiah, God promised Abraham that he was going to use him and his descendants to bless all the people of the earth. And we know that was a reference to Messiah, Jesus. But God didn't stop there. In Genesis 12, 3, God said, those who bless my people will be blessed, and those who oppose and persecute my people will be cursed. Now, we're tempted to think that that promise only applied to Old Covenant Jewish believers. No, it went much further than that because those Old Covenant Jewish believers were setting the stage for something much bigger, the New Covenant Church of Christ. And that's why Jesus essentially restated Genesis 12. He did it in the parable of the sheep and the goats when he said, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. When you touch them, Jesus said, you are touching me. Jesus made it clear that the way a person treats Jesus' followers reveals that person's attitude towards God himself. Now, you know as well as I do, most unbelievers would reject that notion. They would say, I don't hate God, it's Christians I can't stand. It's Christianity I can't stand. But I don't have a problem with God. I have a problem with the people who say they know Him. But Scripture says otherwise. Scripture indicates 
that unbelieving people are hostile towards God's followers precisely because they're hostile towards God himself. Now, Jesus made that abundantly clear. If words have meaning, Jesus made that clear. Because here's what he said to his disciples. The world is going to hate you the way it hates me. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Then he went on to tell them why the world hates him. He said, the world hates me because my words reveal their sin. Pretty clear. I don't know if you can interpret that six different ways. The world hates me because my words reveal their sin. And that is an affront to the pride of the unbelieving. That's why I continually remind you, a church that isn't revealing human sin in its teaching is not taking its cues from Jesus. If you're preaching the words of Jesus, you will point out human sin. And if you aren't pointing out human sin, you aren't preaching the words of Jesus. You're preaching a compromised gospel. Now, that being said, Let's consider how Obadiah's history lesson underscores everything I've said thus far. Obadiah wrote following the siege of the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Now, if you're familiar with siege warfare, it was a very cruel exercise. The invading armies would surround a city and cut it off from aid, from food, from water, from all of the necessities of life. And then they would just wait them out. And generally, after a siege had been in play for a while, the inhabitants of the besieged city would be experiencing starvation and thirst and desperation. We know from history, many times they resorted to cannibalism to stay alive. We know that there were occasions when parents ate the bodies of their deceased children to stay alive. That's how desperate it got. So by the time the siege was over and the invading army was able to enter the city, the inhabitants that were left were so weak they could barely stand, let alone defend themselves. So what followed was massacre or mass slavery. And that's exactly what happened to Jerusalem in 586 B.C., after a slaughter, the Babylonians took the unfortunate survivors and led them into captivity. It was easily one of the darkest days in Israel's often dark history. Now, as all this was unfolding, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, who lived in a mountainous kingdom, watched with great satisfaction. They had front row seats and they were loving what was going down. They enjoyed it. And for that reason, they did nothing to intervene to help their blood relatives in Jerusalem. Worse than that, after the Babylonians left, they looted what was left in the city of Jerusalem. And when refugees from Jerusalem tried to escape through their kingdom, they rounded them up and handed them back over to the Babylonians. Because the Edomites despised God's covenant community and they rejoiced in their calamity the same way many unbelieving despise God's church today 
and rejoice when there's some scandal in the church, some preacher gone off the rails or some financial scandal in the church, and they just delight in pointing that out. They celebrate it. All of this began much, much earlier when Jacob tricked his brother Esau out of his spiritual birthright. Now, Jacob wasn't right to resort to trickery, but the real problem was with Esau. He placed so little value on his spiritual inheritance that he was willing to trade it for a bowl of soup one day when he had come in from hunting and was hungry. He put a momentary hunger above his spiritual inheritance. And again, that's why he's a picture or a symbol of the flesh, because the flesh doesn't value the things of God. It just follows after its momentary bodily and emotional impulses and always puts those things ahead of the work of God's Spirit. Well, when Esau realized he had been tricked, you know the story. He wanted to take Jacob's life. Jacob had to flee. For years they didn't see one another. But years later, they came back together and they buried the hatchet. But Esau's descendants dug the hatchet back up. They wanted revenge. Not for any spiritual reason, but for economic reasons. Because with the spiritual blessing there went a prospering. Now, when Babylon conquered Israel, God was using the Babylonians to discipline his rebellious and stubborn people. But the Edomites weren't being used by God when they acted. They acted on their own. And so in response to their cruelty, God instructed Obadiah to announce that he was going to do to them what they had done to Israel. But those words were not just meant for the Edomites. They sound a warning to anybody who would follow in their footsteps. And by that I mean anybody who feels no need of God, despises God's people, and seeks the destruction of God's people. To people like that, Obadiah announced, when you attack God's people, God sees, God cares, and God repays. Would you read that with me? When you attack God's people, God sees, God cares, and God repays. Like God's enemies in every age, the Edomites were arrogant. They were proud. They had a prosperous economy. They had a strong military. And they were an oddity in the ancient world. They were atheists at a time when everybody else had multiple idols and multiple gods, the Edomites were proud, militarily powerful, economically prosperous atheists. They didn't need God. And they lived in a mountain stronghold, and their capital was the city of Petra. Most of you have seen pictures of Petra, a city carved out of stone. The only way into Petra is through an extremely narrow, deep, Ravine. It makes it impossible for invading armies to successfully conquer them. 
So as they sat up in their wealth, in their atheism, in their fortress, they thought to themselves, what happened to Jerusalem could never happen to us. But they were mistaken. They were about to discover what those who reject God always discover eventually, even if it's too late. They were going to discover that pride distorts our grasp of reality. And Obadiah makes that very clear. Pride and deception always go hand in hand. Those who feel no need of God believe they're self-sufficient. But the reality is they are entirely at God's mercy. They just don't know it. And in the case of the Edomites, God's mercy was about to come to an end. Do you know that Obadiah has been called the prophet of poetic justice? We use that term poetic justice when somebody receives back exactly what they did to somebody else. We say, well, that's poetic justice. Well, Obadiah is called the prophet of poetic justice because his message was, Edom, what you did to Jerusalem, that's exactly what's got to happen to you. And God meant what he said. Because a few hundred years later, the prophet Malachi, we'll get to him at the end of our series, made this observation. He said, there's nothing left in Edom except a few badgers and lizards. And it was true. It was totally uninhabited, wiped off the map because God saw and God cared and God repaid. Now, don't relegate Obadiah's voice to the past because it speaks to the present like all Scripture. It makes it clear that Edom's fate would be shared by anybody who attacks God's kingdom and God's people. When God's enemies behead little children in Syria because they love Jesus, God sees. When God's enemies rape Christian young women in Pakistan and in Egypt and force them to become Muslims, God sees. When Muslims burn churches to the ground in Indonesia, God sees. When ISIS makes believers kneel before the cameras to film their beheading, God sees. When the enemies of God stand by and watch all of this go down without raising a hand to help the oppressed, God sees sees. And when a society like ours incessantly mocks Jesus' followers every opportunity, routinely questioning our sanity, our intelligence, our motives, our hearts, God sees. God cares. And God will repay. He said, revenge is mine. And he meant it. Now, sadly, some believers don't like teaching like this. They don't like prophets like Obadiah because they would say they're offended by the idea of God taking vengeance. After all, they would say, why would a God who calls us to love our enemies and do good to those who are evil toward us why would a God who calls us to forgive others as he has forgiven us, why would that same God contradict those principles 
by judging unbelievers and taking vengeance on their sin. And, and on our part, some would suggest, aren't we being hypocritical when we want to see God judge the sins of others? Aren't we overlooking our own sinfulness? Isn't it a double standard? And those are fair questions. And Obadiah would answer them with a resounding no, 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 and no. Because he reminds us the idea of judgment isn't unworthy of God, and it's not unworthy of God's people. You see, God's loving restoration and rescue of his creation and fallen humanity is the central theme of the Bible. The Bible is just a circular book. It starts with a created paradise, then everything goes south, and God gets to work, and the Bible ends with a restored, perfect paradise. It's a circular book. And the central theme of Scripture is God's restoration of His creation and fallen humanity. But you see, that restoration would not only be incomplete, it would be utterly impossible without judgment on the unbelieving and human sin. And to explain that, let me use a medical analogy. If God didn't judge the unbelieving, he would be like an oncologist who would allow a malicious cancer to grow in his patient untreated, unchecked, unmedicated, all the while assuring the patient that they're going to make a full recovery. Now, if you saw that in the medical world, you'd say, that's preposterous. You don't leave the cancer go and see the patient recover. You're ensuring that the patient is going to die. If God doesn't judge and take vengeance on the moral cancer in his creation, the patient will never recover. Humanity will never recover. The created realm will never recover. God has to act just like the surgeon acts. Furthermore, the idea that why would God tell us and then do this assumes that God operates by the same rules as we do. And that assumes that God is like us. And both of those things are preposterous. Let me suggest, because Scripture doesn't tell us, let me suggest perhaps the reason God calls us to love our enemies is that He wants to protect our souls from the ungodly hate that is never very far from us. Ungodly hate that is grounded in my own insecurity, my own pride, and my own self-interest. But you see, God doesn't need to protect his soul from garbage like that. God's hatred is a pure and holy hatred, the flip side of his love. God's hatred is his eternal opposition to the evil that destroys his creation and humanity. So God doesn't need to protect his soul against hate, but you and I do. The reality is, God's retribution of evil is the only hope that one day things are going to be better. Because if you keep the same things going, you're going to keep getting the same results. So God hates sin. God will judge sin. And believers 
are permitted to hate it as well and long for that day of judgment. You see, in many ways, Obadiah was preaching the gospel long before Peter and Paul had the privilege to do that. I say that for two reasons. First, the promise of retribution is at the center of the gospel. The gospel is the announcement that the God who created the universe is king of the universe. And as king, he is determined to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin, the emptiness of unbelief, and the colossal waste of death. Toward that end, he has to subdue all his enemies because they are the enemies of his restoration. Toward that end, he not only has to subdue his enemies, he will subdue his enemies. None will stand against him. Yet, in mercy, in this present hour, he offers us the chance to make peace with him through the sacrifice and resurrection of his son. But whether we accept his terms or not, he will not deny his creation its restoration, and he will not deny his people their inheritance. See, the gospel doesn't plead with proud, self-sufficient sinners, asking them to let God into their life so that they can be even more proud and self-sufficient. The gospel isn't weak. The gospel is the strong statement of a mighty God who says, you have chosen a path that will lead to ultimate destruction. I want to save you from that. But if it's your choice, then have at it. C.S. Lewis said, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who said to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God will say, thy will be done. And by the way, going back to the poetic justice thing, because I skipped it in my notes. What Obadiah had to say reminds us that when God judges, he's not creating an evil to bring destruction in somebody's life. That's, that's an unbiblical notion. When God judges, all he does is he takes the evil that we have unleashed against others and he allows it to make a turn and come back and do what it does in our life. Judgment isn't God making things bad for you. Judgment is God saying, what you've been doing towards others, I'm going to let it bounce back and have the same effect on you. You see, it's not about what God does. It's about what we do. So spare me. Oh, how could a God... Come on, let's ask the right questions. Why would we choose unbelief? That's the critical question. All the others are just smoke screens. So, like all of the prophets, Obadiah closes positive. He wasn't a pessimist. In his closing lines, he looked far into the future, beyond where you and I are right now. He looked until the day of Christ's return. 
And he confidently declared as he closed, one day the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now in Revelation 11 we read, the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Obadiah was echoing Revelation long before Revelation was written. And if Revelation is relevant, Obadiah is relevant. He didn't know about Jesus. He didn't know about the cross. He didn't know about the resurrection. He didn't know about the second coming. But he knew God would repay evil and restore his creation. Earlier I said that this whole Esau, Israel, Edomite, Israeli thing is symbolic of the battle between the flesh, the unbelief in us, and the spirit, God in us. And the way... Obadiah close should remind us that the day is coming when believers will no longer have to do battle with the flesh. Temptation will be an irrelevant term. All of the impulses to be selfish and proud and hateful and lustful, there'll be no more. Think of that. Think of that. Our hearts will be under the reign of Christ entirely. I can get jacked about that. <laughs> Every week we close by talking about the difficult intersection of faith and culture and what culture says to us at the intersection, what Jesus says. Well, in the case of Obadiah, he reminds us that when we stand at the intersection of faith and culture, culture says, we're destroying you. Church of Christ, you're archaic. We don't need you anymore. We don't want you in public discourse. We don't want you in politics. We don't want you in moral discussions. We wish you would just go away. But if you're not going to go away, know that we're moving on without you. We're moving on to a better world, and the world will never be any better than when all of you are gone. That's what culture says to followers of Christ, if you're listening at all. So what does Jesus say when we're standing there? Jesus says, I don't listen to them. They've been saying that for thousands of years. Talk to my friend Obadiah. He'll remind you that everybody who takes that course, everybody who makes that boast will be brought low. And I will vindicate my people because I see... I care, and I will repay. You know, I'm often asked by people, Pastor Rock, why is it that Christians are the only unprotected class in our culture anymore? Meaning, you can't criticize anybody else without being branded an intolerant, hateful bigot. But you can say, all the malicious things you want to say about Christians and nobody will raise a protest. Why is that, people ask me. And I'd say, quite simply, because Edomites always stick together. <laughs> people say, why is it that atheists seem to hate us, but they're so careful not to offend a Muslim or a Hindu? Why the double standard? Because Edomites hang together. Everything that is contrary to Christ, everything that has its roots in unbelief, 
hangs together. Birds of a feather. But they always hate what is of Jesus. So when the world says, oh, we can't offend them, can't offend them, can't offend them, but we can crap all over you. Don't get bent out of shape. It's predictable. And it's not about you. Unless you're being a butthole, then that's something else. Right? You know, sometimes Christians can act badly and, oh, I'm being persecuted. Shut up. You're not, being, you're not being persecuted for Jesus. You were a butthole. Quit it. Right? But generally, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And don't get discouraged. Let our buddy Obadiah remind us the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that the restoration our hearts long for, the restoration creation longs for, can never, 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 never be stopped by hatred and unbelief. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God, and He will reign forever. And in that, we can find our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>